we conclude our Genesis sermon series today, we'll be in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, through chapter 12, verse 3. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you're anything like me, you have to decide multiple times a day if you're gonna receive a phone call. Your cell phone rings, you look down, and it's a call from Salt Lake City, Utah, and you think, do I know anybody in Salt Lake? Should I take this call? Or for me, it's you get a call from South Florida, and I realize I grew up there. Maybe it's an old friend from high school. Should I take this call? And then you realize there's this thing called robocall, which is a phone call that uses an automated computer dialer and delivers a pre-recorded message to you. But we are in such an information overload age that it even gets to our cell phones and phone calls. And when your phone rings and you look down at it, you're faced with a couple of questions. Do I receive this? Is this gonna be a life-giving call? Is this gonna drain me if I answer this call? So it raises a question in the world of calls that we receive all the time. Is there a call that 100% of the time is life-giving? Is there a call 100% of the time, that's life-giving. Or another way to ask it is, what call do you need to receive to thrive in a difficult world? The short answer is God's call, the call of God. But the question is why? Why do you need God's call? What's the nature of it when it comes to you? And how do you respond to God's call? So let's begin with the need for God's call. Why do you need it? To explore this, we're gonna look at God's call to Abram. Now, what was Abram's situation when God called him? What was the situation of his family? Well, we look at verses 27 to 30, and we learn that Abram was one of three brothers. Terah fathered Abraham, or Abram at this point, Nahor and Haran. Haran fathered Lot, and then Haran died, and so Abram, and his brother Nahor were left. They took wives. Abram married Sarai, Sarai, and Nahor married Milcah. 
And so you see this family, and you go, what was this family like? Spiritually, what was this family like? What was Abram's family like when God came to call him? And we learn this in Joshua 24 too. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. So Abram and his family didn't know God. They didn't worship God. In fact, the two cities that they lived in, Ur, and then they would move to Haran, were two cities that were the center of the moon god cult. They were centers of the worship of the moon god. Now you say, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, I can't quite connect to that. And that's because the, our false gods in 21st century America are very different than the false gods in the ancient Near East. Now while the idols and the false gods are different, the condition of the human heart was the same in the ancient Near East as it is today in 21st century America. As I said last week, we enter this world and are in this world on a search for worth and significance. And we search for that worth in something or someone in this created world. And oftentimes that thing that we believe is gonna give us worth is oftentimes clustered in cities. So for example, if your ultimate worth and significance comes from being a good, successful film producer or film director, then you move to Los Angeles. If your ultimate worth and success comes from, or comes from uh, producing music or writing music or being a singer, then you move to Nashville. If your ultimate worth and significance comes from being a shaker and a mover in the financial world and the banking world, then you may move to New York City. And certainly, if your ultimate worth and significance comes from acting or dancing or singing in musicals, then you move to New York City, where there's Broadway. So I share this because this is what we see with Abram's family. Now, none of those vocations are wrong. Right? What we're getting at is when they become functional gods and how they can define different cities. And certainly with Abram and his family, the city of Ur and the city of Haran contained the false gods that his family was worshiping. They were a family that didn't worship God. They were a family that didn't know God. They were searching for life. They were searching for worth, significance outside of their creator. And what we know is that given a million chances, given an infinite number of chances, they never would have chosen to worship God or follow God. And that's why Abram needed God's call, right? to call him out of unbelief. God had to intervene. As I approached the end of my college years, I decided that I was gonna go to grad school to be a successful civil engineer. And so I applied to five grad schools. Four of them were in the south and southeast, very near to home. They were uh, grad schools that I was confident that I could get into, but I picked one that was a, it was a reach. 
But it was in Austin, Texas. It was the University of Texas at Austin. And it was in the top five in the country for this grad program. And I applied sight unseen with no visit. And I decided if I get accepted, which I never thought I would, if I get accepted, I'm going sight unseen because it will launch my career and launch my success. And so sure enough, I got accepted. I got a research assistantship. And so I loaded up my little red pickup truck and I drove 16 hours to Austin, Texas into an apartment I hadn't seen. I went to Austin. I went to that city because that represented for me the God of vocational success. Now, had God not called me out of unbelief because when I moved to Austin, I didn't know God, I didn't worship God. Had God not called me out of unbelief, I don't know where I would be today, but I can say this with 100% confidence that I would still be chasing after false gods. God had to call me out of unbelief. God calls you out of unbelief. We don't call ourselves out of unbelief. If you're worshiping God today and following him, then he's called you out of unbelief. Maybe you have a story like Abram. Maybe you are the only person in your family that worships God or knows Christ. And if that's you, you know the loneliness of that. You know the, the heart of that, the struggle, the, some of the doubt when you're the only one in your family. And that's why God's call doesn't just bring you out of unbelief, but it calls you through seasons of struggle and seasons of doubt. And this is what we see with Abram. Verse 31, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, why did Abram and his family leave Ur? Well, we learn in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, that God's call came to Abram before he got to Haran. In other words, while he was in Ur. We read this, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, we also learn in verse 1 of chapter 12, the language that's used there, the Hebrew expression, when God calls Abram, it means to leave by yourself. God's call on Abram was to leave by himself with his wife, but to break from his family and go to Canaan. And yet we see that he doesn't break from his family until he arrives in Haran. So why did, why did his family, it, it appears that it's more of a family decision, not a following a vision. Why did his family leave Ur? Seems like it was just a, a decision out of wisdom. We know that the city of Ur was destroyed in 1950 BC. And so on their way to Canaan, they come to Haran. And this was a place where they were comfortable because the false gods were there that they were worshiping. So they settled in another city where they could continue to follow these false gods. And what we learn about Abram, because the call on Abram was to leave, to break, to go to Canaan. We learn that Abram was slow to believe. He was still with his family. He still settled in Iran when the call was to go to Canaan. He was half-hearted in his belief. He was slow in his belief, and we see that in the stories that unfold. When he lies about his wife later on, Sarai, that she was his sister to try to manipulate the situation, we see that Abram was a little slow and a little full of doubt in his, in his belief before God. 
So you say, what ultimately prompted Abram to leave Haran and go to Canaan, where God had called him? Well, Acts chapter seven, verse four says this. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Abram left Haran to go to Canaan because God moved him. And what we learn here is that, yes, God called Abram out of unbelief, but then when he was slow to believe and he struggled and had seasons of doubt and he kind of had this half-hearted obedience that kept him from moving on to Canaan, God brought him out and kept moving him along. And that's the promise of God's call. It doesn't just call you out of unbelief once, but it calls you in your life through seasons of doubt, through seasons of struggle. It's the picture of what we see in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You don't need God's call just once. You need God's call every day to bring you out of struggle, to bring you through struggle, to bring you through doubt. And God's call does that. So you need God's call. But second, what's the nature? What is the nature of God's call? And what we see is that God's call requires trust and it requires vision. It requires trust and vision. Let's start with trust. Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Abram was called to leave his family. He was called to leave his country. He was called to leave everything he knew. Hebrews chapter 11 explains the nature of God's call on Abram this way in verses eight to nine. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in the tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, a few observations here. Abram was called to leave everything he knew. He was called to leave his family. He was called to leave his country. What we see here is that God's call confronted Abram's desire for comfort and control. Right? God's call confronted his desire for comfort. He went to a foreign land, a foreign culture. He lived in tents. God's call confronted his desire for control. He didn't know where he was going. And that's what we learn about God's call. It does the same in our lives. It calls you. God calls you to transfer your trust from control and comfort to him. His call demands your active trust. Oxford philosopher Basil Mitchell gives this great illustration on what active trust looks like. Active trust in God, responding to his call, looks like. 
He says, imagine you're in German-occupied France during World War II, and you want to join the resistance movement against the Nazis. And so you're in this local bar one evening, and a stranger walks in and approaches you and introduces himself as the resistance leader of the locals in the area that are a part of this resistance movement. And this stranger introduces himself. He spends the evening with you. He explains the general requirements of what it means to join the resistance movement against the Nazis. And he spends enough time with you so you can assess his trustworthiness. But then he says this, if you join, your life will be at risk. And he says, this is the only face-to-face meeting you're going to get. From this point forward, you'll receive orders and you'll have to follow them without question often completely in the dark as to the whys and the wherefores of the operations. Is such trust reasonable? And in this parable, Mitchell goes on to say, sometimes what the resistance leader is doing is obvious. He's helping members of the resistance, and you say, thank heavens he's on our side. But there's other times that it's not so obvious. He's in a Nazi uniform, arresting the locals, and unknown to you, releasing them out of sight to help them escape the Nazis. But you must always trust and follow the orders without question, despite all appearances, no matter what happens. He goes on to, at the end of this parable, to to say this, only after the war, Will the secrets be opened, the codes revealed, the true comrades vindicated, the traitors exposed, and sense made of the explanations? It's such an apt and appropriate picture of God's call and a call to trust, especially when we don't feel comfortable or especially when we feel out of control to trust God even when we can't see or understand what's happening. That's the nature of God's call. It's a call to trust. But second, it's also a a call that that demands or requires vision. Look at verse two of chapter 12. And I will, speaking to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. Now understand that when God speaks this to Abram, he's married to his wife, Sarai, who is barren. And we learn as the story unfolds that at one point they laugh at God's call because Sarai, or then becomes Sarah, is beyond childbearing years. There is no human understanding or human strategy that Abraham and his wife can figure out of how this promise of one day becoming a large nation and a large family can ever happen. And so you say, well, then what empowered Abram to believe God and to persist and persevere through what they couldn't see themselves getting to? Hebrews 11, verse 10. For he, Abraham, 
was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram had a vision given to him by God of the city that God was designing, the city of God, not the city of Babel that man was making, but the city of God that God was designing and making. We read of this city in Revelation 21. It's called the Holy City, the New Jerusalem that would come down, will come down out of heaven one day when Jesus returns. And the description of this city in Revelation 21 is absolutely stunning because it says in this city, this city of God, there's no more sin. There's no more death. There's no more mourning. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. It's a beautiful city. And yet, to state the obvious, you and I can't see that city with our physical eye. We have the vision of that city, but we can't see it. It's a vision that we trust. That's why God's call, the nature of God's call is that it requires trust in him and trust in this vision of what he's doing and what he is bringing one day. A glorious eternal future that God has in store for his children. So you need God's call because you can never pull yourself out of unbelief and you can't even pull yourself through seasons of doubt and seasons of struggle. You need God's call. But second, God's call requires trust and vision because he calls you to transfer your trust from comfort and control to him. But third, how do you respond to God's call? How do you actually respond to God's call? In verses two to three of chapter 12, the word bless is used five times. The word bless is used five times in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And then in these two verses, it's used five times. And what we learn here is that God desires to bless and not curse. You say, how, how do you know that? Well, if you look at verse three, I will bless is a statement, that's a statement of resolve. And it's addressed or it's delivered or spoken to plural recipients, to many. I will curse, that's actually a verb that's in a different tense than I will bless. Different aspect. And it simply means a simple statement of fact and it's only addressed to a singular recipient. And so in verse three, it is clear that God desires to bless and not curse. He desires to bless you. Now, what does this mean? There's enough bumper stickers and there's enough billboards around town that get this wrong. Bless does not refer to the physical and material, like health or like wealth. Now, now God can give you wealth. He can give you a, a healthy life. He can give you physical gifts, but God can also withhold those. The word bless here means to impart 
or to give strength and joy and power for life. So you can be incredibly wealthy and incredibly healthy and be blessed. You can be poor and live in scarcity and be blessed because it's speaking of giving you strength and joy and power. Think about the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. God's call is intended and his desire is to bring blessing, but it demands a response. And how do you receive this blessing? How do you respond to God's call that is to bring blessing? Look at verse three again. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Abram prefigured Jesus Christ. So all those in this time in the Old Testament, all those that followed Abram, that worshiped the God that Abram worshiped would be blessed, would be given joy, strength, power for life. And all those that dishonored Abram or didn't follow him, did not worship the God that he worshiped would be cursed, would not receive that strength, joy, power for life. Just like Abram, Jesus left his country He left heaven to come to a foreign land, to come to earth. Like Abram, Jesus left his father's house to come to a dark and broken world. Unlike Abram, Jesus responded perfectly to God's call. Perfectly to God's call. Philippians 2 says it this way, Jesus becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He lived, he died, he rose, he ascended to bless you, to give you strength, to give you joy, to give you power for life. How do you respond to God's call? Well, at the end of Hebrews 11, which describes all these Old Testament believers that trusted God and believed his promises. Listen to what it says about them. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I want you to imagine you're on a cross-country race in the Rocky Mountains with a bunch of people. The catch is you're in a wheelchair. And so in a wheelchair, you're traversing the the rocky terrain and the peaks and the valleys and and it's hard, tough slogging and you're in this wheelchair and the, the deal is that you have to get to the finish line before you can get out of the wheelchair. 
And so everyone's just pushing hard on the wheels, trying to move these wheelchairs across the Rocky Mountains. And, and as you're doing it, you see this man fly by you. He's not in a wheelchair. He runs by you and disappears into the future. And then a little while later, you see him coming back from the horizon, and he comes up to you, and he says, I finished the race for you. I know how to get you to the finish line. Take my hand. Come out of the wheelchair. So you do. You grab his hand. He takes you out of the wheelchair, and you start running with him. And suddenly, this journey is not so hard, and suddenly you find yourself with this newfound strength and joy. There's still peaks, there's still valleys, the terrain is still rocky. But this man has been to the finish line. He knows what it looks like at the finish line. And you trust he's gonna get you there. This is a picture of what it means to respond to God's call. You need that man to get you out of the wheelchair. You need to trust that he knows how to get to the finish line. You need to trust his description of what the end is like. The picture of God's call. Jesus Christ has finished the race. And he pulls you out of the wheelchair of sin and brokenness. And he carries you and he brings you to the finish line. but you have to hold his hand. You gotta grab his hand by faith. And so that's the question for you this week. As God's call comes to you, as God's call comes to you, will you grab Jesus' hand by faith? Maybe for some of you the first time, or maybe for some of you in a season of doubt and struggle, you've got to grab, every morning you grab hold. Will you grab Christ's hand by faith and experience the blessing of newfound joy and newfound strength and newfound power for life in this rocky pandemic journey? Let's pray. Oh, Father, this news is so good. This news that you call us. Oh, and we confess, Father, that we desperately need your call. We can't get ourselves out of unbelief. We can't pull ourselves out of a season of doubt or struggle. We need your call. Father, would you give us the strength to trust you? To trust you even when we feel uncomfortable, even when we feel out of control, even when we don't understand what you're doing or we can't see how you're moving. Would we trust you because you've got a great track record? Your son, Jesus Christ, has run the race and finished the race for us. 
So Father, would you help us to look to Jesus, the author, the founder, the perfecter of our faith. Would you help us this week to look to him and as we do to receive your blessing, this newfound strength and joy and power for life in a very difficult time that we're in the midst of in this pandemic. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.